0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I want to talk tonight about the nature of thought. How we get confused. How, if we understand thoughts well, uh, it is, um, it's really a doorway to freedom. And I want to start off by reading the uh, opening verses of the Dhammapada, which I'm sure many of you know. It's very profound. <coughs> we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure or confused mind, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure or clear mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. Pretty simple, huh? It's a good incentive to understand what thoughts are about, isn't it? Thoughts are just another aspect, one aspect of our being, like hearing. The ear has the function to hear with hearing consciousness present. The body has all of its functions and the mind creates thoughts. That's one of the things it does. Like, we are the creative principle of nature happening within us. I was saying to somebody in an interview the other day, you know, you you can't stop nature from creating. You have to, you know, you go out into the forest and you need to do something like, you know, Agent Orange or you know, insecticide or killer weed or something like that, to keep nature down. Otherwise, it just does its thing and loves to create, or its function is to create. And in the same way, we have this creative machine or mechanism or mysterious whatever called mind that creates thoughts and creates a lot of stories and beautiful feelings, and wonderful visions, and confusing um, content that can either lead us to great happiness and peace at times, or, uh, or sorrow and, and suffering. So it's not that thoughts are bad, or that we need to get rid of this thinking process. It's just the more we can understand how they affect us, the more discrimination we have as to what we want to give energy to, what we want to focus on. As a simple experiment, I do this in the beginning class, and maybe some of you have, uh, have done this before with me. Just close your eyes for a moment, and uh, I'll say a word and notice what happens. Trouble. Trouble. Notice what goes on inside, any images that you might have, or how it feels in there. I won't leave you here, don't worry. Just take a few breaths, and you can kind of erase the board in your mind. And I'll say another word. Kindness. Kindness. Notice again what images or how it feels. Okay, if you'd like you can open your eyes. You notice any difference between those two? And those are just two words, complete non sequiturs, not related to any story at all that when you hear you have a certain reaction, often a pretty powerful one. Can you just get a sense of what it's like if you replay certain thoughts over and over and over, the effect on your being and on your attitudes and on your actions. Thoughts are as real as we make them when we believe them, and they're as empty as we allow them to be. When we truly understand, they are completely empty until we believe and give them energy. Thoughts are one of the, um, the four great attachments that the Buddha spoke of when he talked about uh, the second noble truth. You know, there is suffering and there's a cause of suffering which is attachment. And he said one way that we get attached is attachment to our ideas and opinions and views about things. There's the random thoughts that come through and then there's thoughts that get congealed into views and opinions. We like to attach to thoughts, even when they don't serve us, I think out of some kind of sense of control or getting a handle on reality, if we can somehow explain it to ourselves, then somehow there's a bit more security. Even if it's bad news, like, I'm terrible, okay, that's who I am somehow getting a handle that way, okay, I know, at least, that I'm really an awful person. We like to know things, just to kind of put it in its place. And then, to make matters worse, besides then having those private opinions about ourselves or even more about other people or about life, then we share them as if they are the ultimate truth. Usually we won't share the ones about ourselves, except for real good friends, but about every other issue, we are often very ready to share our ideas and opinions as being the truth. We believe them. This is uh, one passage by the Buddha on those who are caught in their opinions. For one who is free from views there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and opinions they wander about in the world annoying people. It's kind of Straightforward, telling it like it is. (laughs) And mostly, we annoy ourselves, even more than everybody else. Have you seen it these days? Okay, so we have these random thoughts that come through. And then, another mysterious mechanism of mind, we latch on to a particular thought flying through, as Sylvia calls it, flying through the popcorn popper, you know, that just spouts out all these different messages as if they were real. We latch on to one of those thoughts and then create a whole story around that thought. This is also in Buddhist psychology. This has a name, as most everything does. This is called Papancha. It's a a, Word with a lot of punch to it, right? Papancha, which really means proliferation of thought. How one thought mushrooms into many other thoughts that give rise to many other thoughts. It's almost like a, my mind just went to a Yellow Submarine if you've ever seen it, you know, the, the cartoon anim- animation just kind of going into more and more and more. Papancha. And we start to believe the whole constellation of thoughts. You know, somebody leads a, a loving-kindness, for instance, okay? And you sit there. Okay, here's the loving-kindness period. <clears throat> right, I hope I'm loving. And then it says, wish loving-kindness for everybody here. You know? And you just feel like stone, right? And then the mind says, I can't feel love and then it's, I am not a loving person. And then it can be, I'm not loving because I'm not lovable. And I've never been loved. That's why I can't feel love. And if I was only loved when I was younger and had the kind of parents that I saw and Father Knows Best, you know, then I could do this metta. Right? And then you just go, really give yourself a hard time all because you didn't happen to feel what you thought you should be feeling. People beat themselves up for hours and days over something that simple. Or you think of something, there you are minding your own business on the cushion, and you think of something that you said to somebody at work two weeks ago, (laughs) And you say, oh, God, I can't believe I did that. (laughs) And then you start saying, what a nasty person I am. (laughs) And then you might recount in your life all the nasty things that you've done to all the people and really give yourself a great case for being excommunicated from the human race. (laughs) Just one thought that you focused on that you've given energy and life to, that then creates a whole system, a whole constellation that gets focused and developed into a belief. I remember um, when I started high school, I went to a high school in New York City that was uh, highly um, competitive, and you had to take a special exam to get in, and it was kind of, I was, as I think most people were, kind of intimidated by, uh, by being there the first couple of weeks. And I had done pretty well in, in school in, my, uh, uh, in junior high and uh, my earlier grades. I got to this high school, and after a couple of weeks uh, in chemistry, we got a surprise quiz. Ten questions. I remember this. This is like almost 40 years later, 35 years later. And I got two out of ten, Right. The average was 4 out of 10. But I had never failed anything before. I remember that night. I didn't tell my parents right away. Um, I remember that night in bed like it was yesterday. (laughs) Really, It's just one thought away. (laughs) Knowing that I was going to get kicked out of school, (laughs) disgraced, lose all... Enthusiasm, ambition for uh, for learning, um, quit high school maybe, and I ended up on the Bowery in my mind, you know, as a as a wino on, on Skid Row. <laughs> I, mean, I, I thought my my it was all over. It was all over. That's papancha, right? Just this proliferation. Thoughts are so slippery, and the Buddha has uh, lots of different ways of dealing with thoughts, which I won't go into now. But he acknowledged this is not an easy thing to, to see through the, the, the confusion, to see the true nature of thought, how empty it is. As uh, Ajahn Chah says, thoughts, the thought gets developed into a belief, and belief gives rise to certain actions and actions turn into habits, and habits get hardened into character. So watch the nature of thought and your relationship to it carefully. See what thoughts you empower and give energy to. The real freeing news that we can get in touch with here as we sit together is seeing how empty they are. Joseph Goldstein has a a very good instruction. When you're really troubled by your thoughts, you're sitting in the hall, he says, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. you (laughs) Which, for all intents and purposes, they are. You know, you don't invite those thoughts in, and it's it's really a mistake to take blame or credit for them as they come through. Oh my goodness, what an awful thought! I had, you know. If people saw what a rotten person I am for having that thought, you know, nobody would ever speak to me. Or the other side, hey, that was a pretty neat thought. Uh I hope everybody knows what a great guy I am. That is what's called taking ownership of your thoughts, identifying with your thoughts, taking them to be who you are. The Third Zen Patriarch, one of my favorite passages, verses on the faith mind, he says, when the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing in the world can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. Just imagine having any thought and seeing that it's not you, that you don't have to blame yourself, that you don't have to take credit, that it's just coming through and not snaring you. Imagine having any thought in the world and not believing it. The freedom that comes from that, when a a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. So, my main one of my main practices in, uh, in the last few years is something that I offer and share with you for when you get stuck, when you really get caught. I just ask myself, what thought am I believing right now? If you can discover where the knot is, oh, that's what I'm believing and see, oh, that's just a thought. That's just empty. There is, the whole, the whole uh, construct collapses. You know, as uh, Yershel Kempo says, get out of the construction business. You, know, you don't have to construct those worlds and, and believe them. What thought am I believing now? And the good news is that it's never too late to realize that. Sometimes you can get really lost and gone for you know, an hour or a few hours or even a couple of days and when you realize it the problem comes when on top of seeing that you've done that you then blame yourself for having gotten lost all that time. Oh my God! I can't believe I got lost. Here I am meditating for ten years, or this is my sixth retreat, and I'm still getting lost. Boom. You've just gotten lost again, and you're building up a whole other construction that is extra. And The Buddha had this this great advice. It's in one of the, the discourses to his son, Advice to Rahula in the Nikaya. He says, Whenever you notice, start the meditation now. He doesn't quite say it like that, but he says, you might see the thoughts arise. You might see them just as, they, just as they're about to arise. And he says, take a look and see if this is going to lead to suffering or if this is going to lead to peace or happiness. And if it leads to suffering, don't get into it. If it leads to happiness, Develop it. He says the same thing, by the way, with your words and your actions, with all of these three. You might see your words about to come out of your mouth or your action about to to manifest. And again, that same reflection. Is this going to lead to suffering or happiness? Then he says, you might not realize it until you're right in the middle of the thought or the word or the action. And really, there. Take a look there. See, is this going to lead to suffering? Is this going to lead to peace or happiness? And act accordingly. And then he says, you might not see it until after it's over, well after it's over, either something that you've said or done or gotten lost in. And he says, right there, as soon as you see it, bring mindfulness to bear and learn from how you got lost. So instead of beating yourself up and saying, oh, God, there I was lost again, and adding on, like in Zen they say, adding on a second head on top of the first one, ah, just woke up. Wow, really got lost. How great that I just awoke again, and here I am free. You know, the image that I I like is like, you press the clear button on the calculator. It doesn't matter how confusing the numbers have gotten even past the E, you know, <laughs> you press clear, fresh start, just like that. It's never too late to see through that confusion and start right now. So with this, there's the understanding that thoughts are not the enemy. They're not bad. They're Wonderful, like he says, speak or act with a a clear, pure mind, and happiness will follow you. Thoughts create the world. This meditation building was somebody's thought. Actually, a group of people thought it out together, and boom, here it is manifested. Everything that's man-made is a creation of mind. So it's not that you've got to do away with thoughts. I used to think when I started this practice, I had the erroneous assumption that when, when I was really doing it right, when I really was meditating, that there would be this kind of giant vacuum cleaner that would just come and suck all the thoughts away. And I just, ah, now I'm clear. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. You don't have to do that or even set yourself up to try to do that. In fact, as you start getting quieter and quieter on one level, you start seeing a whole other level of thoughts underneath the thoughts that you didn't even know were there. (laughs) So let go of that. That's just a, you know, uh, an impossible situation. Every now and then, it's possible for there to be not thought, okay? It doesn't last for very long. It's kind of neat when it happens. But you don't have to set yourself up to get rid of anything. It's just seeing through the thoughts, and then they're not a problem. Just like you don't need to block out all the sounds so you don't hear. You know? If only there, weren't, weren't this, there wasn't the sound of those birds, You know? then I could meditate. No, it's fine. You know, the sounds are just there in the background. If only there weren't these sensations, then I could really be doing it. No, that's just another part of experience. It's the same way with thoughts. Once you can see, see them for what they are, then you can work with them skillfully. The second uh, step in the Eightfold Path after right understanding Is right thought or wise thought and that is seeing how empty they are when you can see how empty they are then when you're not bothered by the troublesome thoughts you can give energy to focus on the inspiring thoughts the ones that serve you and so wise thought or right thought is also known as right intention or right aspiration they're all names for that second step and that is as you have an understanding of the possibility say of freedom and you understand that how malleable the mind is and not get seduced by all the the thoughts that confuse us to have a vision of what you aspire to what you want to create is the the guiding um, vision that gives you a direction on the path. And that leads to wise speech, action, livelihood, and effort, and mindfulness, and concentration. Because you have a very skillful thought, a very skillful intention, aspiration. Also, once you see the emptiness of the thoughts, you can change the story because they are very malleable. You can change the belief. It's not as fixed as you would think. When I was, um, when I was 21, I had um, a very uh, transforming understanding. I was um, pretty much a pessimistic person. I just thought that things wouldn't work out, particularly around girls and women. They'd never like me. You know, I was very shy and uh, just kind of usually expected the worst. And one day, <coughs> I had this epiphany. Um, it was a, a very powerful moment, <coughs> and in the background, uh, traffic. Uh, you know the old. If, if you remember the, uh, there's this group. Traffic was singing. Uh, Here's a little song you can all join in with, and the line. Here's a little world you can all join in with. Make your old. Make your own life up if you want to. Any old life that you think will do, and I just realized okay, I keep on thinking that things aren't going to work out. Yep, and they don't, and they don't, and they don't. Gee, what would it be like if I thought that things would work out? Right? And I just got really, it was a revelation to have that idea come through to me, and I just thought, gosh, things work out for other people. You know, What if I thought of myself as being lovable? What if I thought of myself as um, enjoying people and having them enjoy me? What if I expected or acted as if things would work out? What if? It was this great challenge to myself. So I decided to do an experiment. I'd give it one week. and if not then i'd go back to just expecting the worst right <laughs> and for one week i just acted as if i just pretended as if everything was going to be just great it's been a lot longer than a week <laughs> i changed from being a pessimist to an optimist i saw i wasn't getting any gold stars for expecting the worst. Nobody was, you know, saying, hey, good going in there. Yeah, you're really messed up. We'll give you some, (laughs) give you some credit for being complex and deep, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You get what you look for. That's just how it works. Um, I'll share with you a a few stories along this line. This is from a a book that some people uh, know that I've been very enamored with recently called How We Choose to Be Happy. Uh, The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People. And uh, it's a book where they identified, these authors identified about over 200 people who were seen to be really happy. They went on a research project of a few years and they go to to a town and they say, uh, who's the happiest person you know? And they'd say, Shirley, over there, you know. (laughs) And a few people would say, yeah, Shirley, she's the one. And they'd go ask Shirley, well, what, you know, are you happy? Yeah, I'm pretty happy, you know. And then they'd say, well, can we ask a few other people from other walks of, of, you know, who know you in other ways? And she'd say, okay. And then they'd ask them, you know, maybe there's a shadow side. And, uh, you know, if everybody said, yep, she's one happy person, (laughs) then they'd interview Shirley, right, and say, well, what are you about, right? So they interviewed these, uh, these people. They wanted to write a, a chicken soup for the soul, kind of a uh, chicken soup for happy people and give a hundred happy stories. But after they did the, f- did the first 20, they found that all of them were saying the same thing in one variation. The details were different, but they were basically saying the same thing. And they were actually very disappointed in saying, well, we can't write the same story a hundred different ways. And then they said, well, wait a second. What are the common... Things that all of these people have in, uh, you know, have in common, and they distilled after three years and about 230 interviews. I, I, I know one of the guys who wrote this. I met after uh, subsequently to to reading the book. I was so impressed with it, and uh, they distilled nine choices that they all had right. And one of them, the first choice, is the intention to be happy, and this is one. Uh, One person writing about or sharing her secret. She says, My happiness depends on the story I tell myself. The facts are the facts. What happened, happened. But I have a choice. I can tell myself two kinds of stories about today. The first story is about how irresponsible the kids are, how bad the traffic's getting, that I've got a jerk for a boss, and there are too many demands on me. But, in light of eternity, this isn't the story I want to tell myself. This is the only day I've got. Why would I want to have a bad one? The story I tell myself comes directly from my intention to be happy. The problems are still there, but they're not earth-shattering. In this story, I'm surrounded by people I love and admire. I can cut the kids some slack for being typical teenagers. I feel confident solving my clients' problems. And I can appreciate the fact that I have the chance to come in contact with so many different kinds of people. When I tell myself this story, I can stop, take a breath, and consciously let all the negative stuff go and get back to where I feel good. That's the great thing. Each day I have a new opportunity to be happy. Now, in this, you might think, oh, is that just complete denial. You know? And actually, wh- there are a number of people they interviewed who said, um, oh yeah, I'm happy. And they were not happy. They were kind of in denial and upbeat and cheery, but completely deceiving themselves. Truly happy people are not happy all the time, but they're really in touch and choose. They have that first, that intention to to create happiness in their lives, which is just what the Buddha said, you know, when we do the the metta phrases and we say, may I be happy, we're planting the seed, the intention to be happy that bears fruit over time. Here's another story. This is from somebody who did not have a happy, happy day and had to turn her life around As one of our first interviewees, Adele showed us early on that happy people don't necessarily live charmed lives. In 1991, she experienced an unusually tragic set of losses. Her life unraveled as the losses began to pile up. And this is her talking. In one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground. There was the Oakland fire then. My house burned down to the ground, leaving me with nothing. No clothes, photos, furniture. No material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman at the same time that my restaurant went bankrupt. (laughs) It's not not over yet. (laughs) My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. (laughs) Everything in Adele's life basically disappeared, and she had to make some decisions about how to go on. Having lost everything, Adele had many intentions to establish, and she explored the most fundamental question, would she live or die? And this is her talking again. I had nothing. I was so filled with grief I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, A feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity that all this provided. I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this way throughout my life. In spite of my grief, I could see that this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. And then it goes on to say how she... Processed a lot of pain. It took her a while to process all that pain. But where is Adele now? She has more than survived, she has flourished. With her gourmet cooking skills, she started a small catering business that's now thriving. Insurance money from the fire provided the funds to build a serene treehouse overlooking a verdant canyon in the Berkeley Hills. And as she has put a lot of energy into building an intimate and warm support system, she has loads of friends who will love her and stay with her throughout her life. And this is her. I never really considered myself a happy person before. Now I am. In the past few years, I've created a new life. I've learned to live fully, to accept life as a whole. I'm not looking for something to make me happy. I'm doing it for myself. I have a feeling that I can thrive in hard times. I feel content and tranquil. What I never had before was self-knowledge. Now I know myself. I know my limits, my emotional range, my loves, and I know I can build a, a life around those things. What I have now is a life that reflects the real me. So it's possible, it's possible to not say, oh my goodness, this happened to me and now my life is ruined, just by changing the story you tell about yourself or to yourself. Just want to ask to reflect for a moment in the last few days, where have you gotten lost? Just You, may, you might just take a, a moment to go inside and see somewhere in the last couple of days or since the retreat has, has gone, or maybe today, where have you gotten lost? Where have you gotten stuck? And if you come up with something, just ask what thought were you believing? See if you can crystallize it into some particular belief or attitude about what was happening or about yourself. And when you get a sense of that, what would it have been like to see that thought as just a thought, just an empty thought? And while you're still inside, I'd like you just to reflect on something else. What beliefs do you have about yourself or about life that are limitations on reality? And if you get in touch with some limiting belief, how would it be if you saw clearly this belief, this thought, as simply a mental formation that you got caught on? What would it be like if you didn't believe that? That I'm someone who, or if only, or I should have really, or I'll never. What would it be like if you saw that thought as empty? Okay, if you'd like, you can open your eyes. just like to, as you uh, use that as a a personal reflection, just um, share some ideas on the different ways or different areas that we find ourselves caught in limiting beliefs. One is how we hold reality, what we look for. You know, like before when I said I, I looked for things not to work out, we will see what we look for. I have a, a friend who's um, really got a lot going for her. She's she's wise, she's successful, she's got a great heart and, and a very, very lovely person who has a way of looking at where things have gone wrong you know, or what the problems are, either in herself or in her Uh, in her life and um, she's just not not seeing how wonderful she is and how wonderful her life is I remember um, a friend talking about uh, uh, he was visiting his grandmother at a a senior center and he said uh, in the the lobby of this um, this big uh, seniors uh, apartment complex uh, all the there were a couple of different cliques gathered around. In one clique, there were the um, the complainers. You know, can you believe what they serve for lunch today? You know, yeah, yeah. And my son hasn't called in a week. Yeah, yeah. Well, mine hasn't even you know written to me in a year. You know, and just and that was their conversation. He saw. He he went every a few days to to see, and there was this. There was this club that talked about how things were so rotten, and they enjoyed it. They seemed to enjoy it, you know, on a limited basis of enjoyment. Then when there were the other people, you know, hey, you know, isn't it a beautiful day on the other side of the, of the lobby, you know? Yeah, and uh, gee, it's so much fun playing cards, you know, with you, and just, on I don't know, that was that club, you know? You could take your pick, you know? Although most of us don't get a chance to take our pick because we just, our beliefs and our attitudes get hardened into habits. Thich Nhat Hanh has a, a good suggestion. He says, um, we often ask what's wrong. Doing so, we invite painful seeds of sorrow to come up and manifest. We feel suffering, anger, and depression and produce more such seeds we will be much happier if we try to stay in touch with the healthy, joyful seeds inside of us and around us. We should learn to ask sometimes what's not wrong and be in touch with that so when you're going to the dentist you know and you, you're saying, "Oh gosh I've got a toothache Maybe next week you could say, "Ah, no toothache today you know? and uh, another uh, inspiring instruction that I've taken is, um, as I've, I've shared a number of times before, is uh, Karoli Baba, my one of my main <coughs> spiritual connections, the, uh, the Guru in Ramdas's books, Maharaji, whose simple instruction is: keep looking for the good in people and in yourself, even when you see all the flaws. The, uh, all the ways that there's unskillfulness. Keep on tuning into the good because that's what you'll see. And think of how it is when somebody comes into a room and sees all your flaws. You know, how do you feel when you know that somebody is looking out and sees all your, your flaws? You feel flawed, don't you? Exposed. You know? How different it is when somebody comes into a room and sees all your beauty. How do you feel? Beautiful, right? So that person has a power to call out from you just because you can sense that that's what they're looking for. So it's not just that you're, you know, kind of, you know, pretending that the other stuff isn't there. As you look for it, you bring it out in somebody else. You have a tremendous power to affect your environment like that. And if you've been around somebody, say, like His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, I mean, that's what he does. He just sees the Buddha in everybody as they're coming through. And you feel like a Buddha. Well, you can do that, too. So, how you hold reality, what you look for. How you hold your story, what beliefs you have about your story. You know, your past, your upbringing. Oh yeah, I had this happen to me, and that happened to me, and, you know, sometimes people have real traumas, often, you know, on retreats. It's amazing the different traumas that people have gone through, and I'm not suggesting to make light of them and pretend they don't happen. But actually, I also know people, some very wise people, who've had tragedies, real traumas, kind of like Adele, you know who have used those to have a, a deeper level of compassion that is normally available. You know, one person that comes to mind that I think probably a number of people know is Michelle McDonald, one of the, the teachers. She teaches the uh, three-month course uh, each year. And she got in touch after she did practice for quite some time with some really awful memories, abuse, uh, at very early age. And it was, it was not easy going through it. She went through a, a fairly uh, difficult period for a little while, for a couple of years. But she's the person who people flock to on three-month courses who've gone through painful traumas. Because they know that she understands. And she can be there for them in a way that others really can only, um, can only imagine So, not to be a victim of your life and think, oh, if only this didn't happen to me, then I'd be. No, you use that and you process it as a kind of bodhisattva gift that you give to everybody else. Not to be stuck in your victim beliefs. We can also have beliefs about the practice or about the Dharma that confuse us, you know, All kinds of ideas, dharma beliefs. You know, you're sitting here, and you maybe you feel good after you've gotten from a level of, you know, going from the story to having all of these dharma thoughts. You know, oh, well, what about enlightenment? You know, what about enlightenment? You know, what does enlightenment mean anyway? And then you get off into your ideas about that, or what is, what's the right Dharma practice for me, you know. Somebody said, okay, really go in there for, with heroic effort, and somebody else says, simple and easy and just relax, you know. Wh- wh- what's going on here? Who do I believe? You know. Well, there's lots of different suggestions as far as instructions. There's lots of different comments and ideas about Dharma points who knows? There is no right answer. If you get a, a Tibetan uh, tulku, Rinpoche, and a Zen master and a Theravadin uh, Sayadaw or Ajahn in the room, and you ask them to give their ideas about what happens to an enlightened person after they die, you might have a very, very different, lively discussion. With each one thinking, "Well, too bad those guys—they think they're Buddhists, but..." Uh, not so, you don't have to figure any of that out. Notice what your how your beliefs about practice limit you by your ideas and expectations and shoulds, and I should be doing this, or this should be happening now, or this isn't the right way, this isn't the instructions that we're giving, when your heart says, no, this feels right. All kinds of beliefs about practice The core belief that has us confused and snagged is the belief about who we really are, the belief in self. And as you sit here and meditate, and you start noticing all of these thoughts, and then you see all of these different moods, and all of these different sensations, after a while, sometimes it becomes clear, you can't point to any of those and say, that's who I really am. They're all just coming through. You see, oh, this body, what's me in this body? It's just a flow of sensations. What thought is really me? I've had, how many thoughts have you had today? You know, what would you guess? A thousand, nah, forget it. <coughs> Ten thousand, a hundred thousand, millions. The Buddha said he could see 17 trillion mind moments in the blink of an eye. <laughs> I don't know how he counted them, but you know. <laughs> it goes by very fast. And you see through that solidity of who you think you are to who you really are. It's something much more mysterious and vast then this little sense of me. Oh, James, that's who I am. This is uh, Yoshua Kempo. He says, Buddha nature, the uh, essence of awakened enlightenment itself, is present in everyone. It's, its essence is forever pure, unalloyed, and flawless. It is beyond increase or decrease neither improved by remaining in nirvana nor degenerated by straying into samsara. Its fundamental essence is forever perfect, unobscured, quiescent, and unchanging. It's kind of like Huang Po that I read at the beginning. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There is no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing Buddha nature and achieving stability in that as I think Eugene might, might have read this last night, or just alluded to it. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free Of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands, so for them there is cultivation of the mind." Translated by Gil Fransdell. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you see who it is, who you really are, one could say it's just awareness knowing itself. And all of those ideas of your personality and your history are, are just seen as the packaging. Who you really are is quite much more vast than who you think you are. But you get caught in, I know, yeah, I know how it is. Krishnamurti has this uh, great book, it's called Freedom from the Known. When you let go of the knowing, then you can see fresh how it really is. Or if you say, oh no, no, I can't take a look at that because there's too much aversion to even touching what you think is true. There's a possibility of changing your attitude, changing your your heart. Christmas Humphreys, this guy who writes about Buddhism, he says, the one miracle that this path has to offer is a change of heart. Not that you're going to change the circumstances, but you change your relationship and your attitude towards things. And your attitude Is everything. It's just what thoughts you're believing. Here's a couple of sweet anecdotes. As I was driving home from work one day, I stopped to watch a local Little League baseball game that was being played in a park near my home. As I sat down behind the bench on the first baseline, I asked one of the boys what the score was. We're behind 14 to nothing, he answered with a smile. Really, I said, I have to say you don't look very discouraged. Discouraged, the boy asked with a puzzled look on his face. Why should we be discouraged? We haven't been up to bat yet. (laughs) There's a story of identical twins. One was a hope-filled optimist. Everything is coming up roses, he would say. The other was a sad and hopeless pessimist. He thought that Murphy, as in Murphy's Law, was an optimist. The worried parents of the boys brought them to the local psychologist. He suggested to the parents a plan to balance the twins' personalities. On their next birthday, put them in separate rooms to open their gifts. Give the pessimist the best toys you can afford, and give the optimist a box of manure. The parents followed these instructions and carefully observed the results. When they peeked in on the pessimist, they heard him audibly complaining, I don't like the color of this computer. I bet this calculator will break. I don't like this game. I know someone who's got a bigger toy car than this. Tiptoeing across the corridor, the parents peeked in and saw their little optimist gleefully throwing the manure up in the air. He was giggling you can't fool me, where there's this much manure, there's got to be a pony. (laughs) When you let go of what you think to be the truth, when you let go of your beliefs and just see what's really here, you have freedom from what you think you know, there's unlimited possibilities. As Suzuki Roshi says, in Zen mind, beginner's mind, in the beginner's mind, there are unlimited possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And when you can have that beginner's mind that sees through those limitations, those ideas that you have that constrict your reality, that's where the real freedom is. It's bringing that childlike sense of wonder to the moment. And so I close with this passage from Nisargadat Maharaj from I Am That, who was, I think, truly a free being. He says, I'm now 74 years old, and yet I feel that I am an infant. I feel clearly that in spite of all the changes, I am a child. My guru told me, that child, which is you even now, is your real self. Go back to that state of pure being where I am is still in its purity before it got contaminated with this I am or that I am. Your burden is of a false self-identification. Abandon them all. My guru told me, Trust me, I tell you, you are divine. Take it as the absolute truth. Your joy is divine. Your suffering is divine too. All comes from God. Remember it always. I believed him and soon realized how wonderfully true and accurate were his words. So, let's sit for a moment. I do encourage you when you get stuck, when you find yourself caught up, to just ask yourself, what thought am I believing right now? And then see who you are beyond that thought or belief. Okay, thank you. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on November 27, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.